even though it looks like everything is unraveling for Paul and that the plans of wicked men will triumph, he believes that God is still in control. He reigns. Please do take a seat. Father, we thank you for your word, the Bible, and we pray tonight that as we open it up by your spirit, would you help us to understand it and apply it and obey it. Amen. Joel Austin, the well-known Christian author, pastor, and televangelist, stands in the sanctuary of his megachurch in Texas, and he declares this. We have a right to total victory. I want you to get that down on the inside. Not partial victory, where you have a good family, good health, but struggle with your finances. That's not total victory. Maybe God has blessed you. Good family, good job, but you've had a pain in your body for years and years. That's not total victory. God created you to be totally free, to have peace, to have divine health, to have plenty to pay your bills. You have rights and privilege, privileges, and one of those privileges is total victory. I wonder what you make of that. Is that what you expect from being a Christian? Is that what you should expect from being a Christian? Well, maybe we might not express it as, uh, as, as crassly or as boldly as that, but I suspect that subconsciously, Many of us think that normal Christian life is one where we don't have any problems. There is health, there is wealth, there's prosperity. And that when everything is going really well, that is when we are best placed to serve the Lord and worship him more wholeheartedly. Or perhaps we think that if there are problems, we think that if we pray, then they should just go away, straight away. And if they don't, then obviously we're not praying properly. Now, don't get me wrong. God does work miraculously in answering prayers. I've experienced that. I really hope you've experienced that too. But is it the normal Christian life that problems are just solved instantly? Or that they shouldn't just even be there in the first place? Well, it sounds great, especially if you have been going through a rough time this year. But it's not the truth of the matter. As the Apostle Paul makes clear to us in Philippians chapter one, perhaps you saw that there, in verse 29, as it was read out to us. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. This is a recurrent theme throughout the New Testament. So Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And again, in Hebrews 12, verse 7, he says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. Then there's James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And just before you think that this is a bunch of overzealous uh, masochistic disciples here, what about Jesus in Matthew 5, verse 11, as he says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecutely you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Do you get the picture? 
We all know that in this world there will be pain. Behind our smiles, we all carry secret worries and pains. But the Bible is saying that this side of heaven, it will be no different for a Christian. So we shouldn't be surprised if we suffer. The Bible says that difficulties are not strange or odd. They are normal. Which all sounds a bit depressing, doesn't it? Where we're barely 24 hours away from Christmas. Hey, Merry Christmas, everybody. You're going to suffer. Hey. But the Christian's trials and hardships are not in vain. That's one of the things we've got to get straight away. They have purpose. They're for God's glory and our good. In fact, more than that, they're for God's glory and for everybody's good. And that's the message the Apostle Paul is trying to get through to us uh, from Philippians chapter 1 tonight. He was in prison. He was facing execution. And yet he was not depressed. Actually, he's radiant as he talks about, uh, constantly talks about joy amongst other things. And in this chapter, the great apostle tells us the secret of his joy. And I don't know about you, but I want to know that. I want to know the secret of uh, Paul's joy. I want to know the source of this incredible energy that enabled him to face the trials of life without being worn down or worn out. Well, let's take a look at that this evening as we see three tests that Paul had to endure as he suffered for Christ and with Christ with joy. His first test was the test of imprisonment or the test of freedom in verses 12 to 14. As here in this letter, uh, we find the Apostle Paul handcuffed to a Roman soldier awaiting trial before the emperor himself. The great evangelist had been wanting to push on west Uh, across Turkey to Rome, then on into Spain. But his plans have been derailed. He's locked up in the slammer. He isn't going anywhere. Visualize him there in this deep, dark prison cell in Rome. How do you see Paul? Do you see him as a caged lion or a pinioned eagle? Well, you'd be wrong to see him that way. Paul here welcomed his imprisonment. Because however much frustration it brought him personally, it turned out well for Christ. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 says, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. In short, Paul was glad to have lost his freedom if thereby the gospel gained a greater freedom. As he may well be trapped in a prison cell, but the gospel is still going out. And in this case, to the prison guard. Can you imagine these guys uh, coming on duty as they're in the kind of prison guards, um, uh, I don't know, kind of green room or whatever it is and they're looking down the roster to see you know who's what what duty have I got today and Giuseppe finds out oh he's on duty with the apostle Paul again oh no I had him for four hours yesterday oh man I know the whole thing back to front um I could I could I could draw it out for you with the crowns and the stick men and everything (laughs) you see Paul is not put off by circumstances to him the circumstances he finds himself in weren't enemies to be frustrated by. They were opportunities to be grasped. And here he had a captive audience. And why did he think there were opportunities to be grasped? Why? Why? Because Paul believed deeply in the sovereignty of God. That's the key thing. 
He actually believed what he had said in verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will carry on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So everything that could have gone wrong had gone wrong for the Apostle Paul for about two or three years. And his five-year strategic plan for church growth just lay in tatters. But Paul still believes that God is working his purposes out. God is still in control as he says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul believed in the sovereignty of God, that God has a plan for his world and good purposes for his children. And God's plans cannot be thwarted, not even by the might or the power of a Roman empire, emperor or the Department of Education or your boss or whoever else you think is thwarting your plans currently. So even though it looks like everything is unraveling for Paul and that the plans of wicked men will triumph, he believes that God is still in control. He reigns. And when you start to really believe that, you start to see, like the Apostle Paul, that even opposition provides opportunities. A little while ago, I heard the testimony of a guy who had recently become a Christian. He had been working in a hairdressing saloon uh, with a girl who herself was a Christian. She always came in polite. Uh, She was ever so helpful. She was charming and kind to all the staff and the customers. And she was forever inviting him to come to church with her. He always managed to find some way to politely decline the invitation until one morning she came in all bright and breezy when he had had a really rough night the night before. And she invited him to some special event that was going on at church that weekend. And something inside him just snapped. He suddenly felt a a great urge to persecute her. Now, I don't know how you persecute somebody in a hairdresser's. Although, judging by some of the haircuts I've had over the years, I feel I have been a victim of such persecution on a number of occasions. But for this guy, suffice it to say, uh, he kind of swept his hair underneath uh, her hair, of her, uh, underneath her chair, um, and hid her scissors and messed up her clipper tips um, until eventually she invited him to, to church once again, um, and uh, he just went uh, nuts and they tipped over her chair, slapped her in the face, and just stormed out of the saloon. Later that night, he's sitting at home, probably unemployed. The phone rings. It's the girl. You didn't answer my question about whether you're coming to church with me this weekend or not. He didn't have the heart to say no. And he went, and he heard the most wonderful message, the message we celebrate this Christmas of great joy for all people. And he gave his life to Jesus right there and then. Now, I guess that girl in the hairdressers saw things just like the Apostle Paul, didn't she? The opposition is just another form of opportunity. Because God is still God even when the going gets tough. And perhaps that's the message you need to hear tonight. As right now you're in a very difficult place. You face extraordinary problems and pressures. And it's been one setback after another. Remember that God is sovereign. God rules. God is accomplishing his purposes. The pressures of life are the hands of the potter who is your heavenly father. God places you or me in certain situations to make a difference for him, to stand for him and to live for him, to stand for his truth and his principles and his word. 
So we are not tempted to give up or give in, especially to opposition. We are not to be silenced. All we need to do is be faithful, keep going. Opposition is an opportunity. And who knows what might happen if we take the opportunities that opposition presents. For that lass in the hairdresser, she persevered and seized the opportunity. The gospel went out. Maybe you've seen fruit like that. Praise the Lord for it. Yeah, for others like friends of mine who this term have had the courage to, to speak up for the Bible's view on marriage in the face of the government's proposal to introduce same-sex marriage. They seem to have only received as their fruit scornful abuse and vitriol. But their example has encouraged some others to be bolder too. It's encouraged me to be bolder. And if more of us were to stand up in the face of that kind of opposition, surely that would encourage us all to stand. We may not always convince the opposition, but our courage can still bless the church. After all, that's what Paul's example did. We don't know how many of those Roman guards that he was chained to actually came through to faith, but we know that they heard the gospel and that because of Paul's faithful witness in extreme circumstances, verse 14, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. That's the test of freedom. Secondly, we move on to the test of reputation in verses 15 to 18. As damage was being done here to Paul's reputation, not just to his freedom, those who were made more bold to preach as a result of Paul's imprisonment were a very mixed bag indeed. Check out verse 15 with me, will you? It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. Now, these guys weren't false teachers. Paul would never have rejoiced in a false Christ being preached. But they preached from very false motives. They didn't want to exalt Christ by their preaching. They wanted to humiliate Paul. That was their agenda. They were jealous of him. And they were kicking him when, they, when he was down. Paul's reputation was being viciously attacked, and there was nothing that he could do about it. He couldn't visit the churches to explain himself or, or sue or, or write to the Rome Times. So what did he do? He did verse 18. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Paul rejoiced he could handle a sullied reputation if Christ was proclaimed. He didn't care what others thought of him. What they said about him behind his back, as long as the gospel was still going out. It's not written in, in any of his letters. I certainly can't find it there, but I'm pretty sure that Paul was the originator of that statement. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. Well, as we reflect on this, I think we'll agree that hard as it is to lose our freedom, it is just as bad to lose our reputation. Our good name is one of our tr most treasured possessions, isn't it? It doesn't matter what position we hold formally. What people think of us and our reputation matter a great deal. Yet Paul's concern is not for his reputation, but Christ's proclamation. And that's a great challenge for us because if any of us speak out for Christ and for his word in this country, our reputation will be sullied by some. 
If we stand up for Christ and his standards at work, then we may well be ridiculed. Has that been your experience this year? In 2012, did you gently and graciously challenge an injustice at work? Was there anyone among your colleagues or friends who you told with tears that unless they respond to Christ, then they will face judgment? Did you risk your reputation with anybody this year? They they may well have slandered you. (laughs) They probably did. But if we love them more than we love ourselves, then we will stand for Christ in that way. Paul would not have cared that his reputation was sullied. He only would have cared that the right thing was done and the gospel went out. And time and time again, I have to say that I do not want my reputation damaged. I don't want to be called a bigger or a nutter or a freak. That's what keeps us from speaking up, doesn't it? So often. The fear of what others might say. But there are worse things that can happen than being called names. Which is the third and final task that Paul faced and we face too. And that's the test of life in verses 19 to 26. A friend of mine called uh, Sophie, who I worked with uh, when I worked for the student uh, organization UCCF, went on to serve with the student movement in Belarus. And just before uh, she went, um, she was really, really anxious. And a friend of hers asked her, what's, what's the worst thing that can happen? And she thought about it for a moment. And she said, uh, yeah, I could be killed. No, 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 hold on. And she thought again. And she thought, no, I, I could be raped. That would be, that'd be a lot worse. And then she thought some more. And it suddenly dawned on her. And she looked up and she said, no, actually, there's something even worse than that, isn't there? And that's that the people of Belarus don't get to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that is Apostle Paul-like faith and behavior, I think. And it's no wonder that the Apostle Paul wasn't worried about the, what, what the troublemakers in the church were up to. Because what's the worst thing that can happen to him? Is it death? Well, look at verse 23. I desire to be with Christ, says Paul, which is better by far. Death is a blessing to Paul. He gets to go and be with his Savior forever. So what about being kept alive in prison? Well, look at verse 24. But it may be more necessary for me to remain in the body. For in the body, even in prison, he can still preach the gospel and encourage the brothers as we've already seen. So what's the worst thing that could happen to him? Verse 20 holds the key. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. The worst thing that can happen to Paul is that he blows it and he doesn't exalt Christ. He's hoping that having been imprisoned for his beliefs, he's still going to have the guts to proclaim those beliefs right to the very end. Even in the darkest times, he'll have the discipline and the desire to stick with Jesus. He says, whether I live or die, that's not the question. How I magnify Christ, that's the question. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is a very challenging attitude, is it not? We don't tend to have difficulty with those first six words, for me to live is, because we're all living for something, and it can be good things, the family, my job, my garden, or my social life. 
It could be sport or the stock market, many at school or university. They live for a good degree or popularity or just a, a good laugh. But so often, if we're honest, it's not for me to live as Christ. It's for me to live as me. It's actually me. I'm the one I'm living for. But for Paul, it was Christ and him alone. He would not live for himself. Paul saw everything as to whether it brought honor or dishonor to Christ. Everything was passed through that sieve. Which is an incredible statement of faith. As he determines himself, no matter what happens, he is to keep the main thing the main thing. And as I think about that, it makes me wonder, how would we handle a similar time of crisis? Many of you will know of the um, author, John Piper. He's a pastor in America, and he's written a number of really, really helpful books. And a few years ago, he was diagnosed as having uh, cancer. And the night before his surgery, he wrote uh, an online article called Don't Waste Your Cancer. You can find that online if you Googled it, and it, I think it's now been produced as a short booklet as well. And in it, he gives the following headings. You will waste your cancer if you see it as a curse and not a gift. You will waste your cancer if you seek comfort from your odds rather than comfort from your God. You will waste your cancer if you refuse to think about death. You will waste your cancer if you treat sin as casually as you did before. You will waste your cancer if you fail to use it as a means of witness to the truth and the glory of Christ. You will waste your cancer if you spend too much time reading about cancer and not enough time reading about God. It's an extraordinary article. There's more to it than that. And it's an extraordinary thought, is it not? Don't waste your cancer. And I think Paul is the original example of that. He didn't waste his crisis. I mean, he's in prison for goodness sake. He could well lose his head. I mean, he did in the end. But the crisis cleared out the clutter and it focused his mind so that he could have a laser beam focus on what really mattered in life. It's not about me, says Paul. It's not about my rights, my comfort, my needs, my leisure, my money, my dreams. It's not about my life. No, it's about Christ's. Well, perhaps this year you've faced an enormous crisis. Out of the blue, it just changed everything. And of course, you're human, so you're shocked and you're, you're stunned and numbed and maybe you can't sleep for anxious thoughts or, or maybe you're angry with God because of what's happened. It's only natural. But surely there comes a point where with John Piper, we say, don't waste your cancer. Don't waste your crisis. Don't waste your pain. Where we ask, how can God use this to make me more Christ-like? How can God use this to focus my mind, my life, my thoughts on him? How can God use this so that I can share the gospel with others? How can God use this so that I can throw out all the clutter all the self-centeredness, and with Paul say, for me to live is Christ. So, we see in this chapter, Paul was in danger of losing three precious gifts, gifts that we all value really highly. His freedom, his reputation, even his very life. Yet his priority is always Christ's glory. Still Christ's glory. It's a very deeply challenging chapter, is it not? I found it so challenging myself as I've looked into this this week. It is not for the faint-hearted. As Paul would not enjoy his freedom or hear his praises sung, 
or have a long life if the only way of getting these things was keeping his head down and denying or disowning or drifting away from the Lord Jesus Christ. He would not play it safe. He simply wouldn't. He would sacrifice all of those things and forgo them for his love of Jesus. Will we? Will we? I don't know what 2013 holds in store. I haven't a clue. I pray it will bring so much joy for each one of us. But we all know that pain is just around the corner in this world. And we will only be ready for the things that lie ahead if we can deep down say that the bottom line is that Christ is honored and glorified most of all in our lives. That the bottom line is for us to say, for me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. Will we make that our motto this Christmas and into the new year? Let's pray that we will. Because that is the way to joy, no matter what life throws us. Let's pray. For me to live is Christ. Father, we thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul here. It's so challenging. And we pray that his example would be one that is our goal over Christmas and for the year ahead. You know the struggles we have. You know how difficult we find them. We confess that we just cannot do this on our own. We cannot get this mindset, this, this way of living by ourselves. And so we would pray that you would keep this at the forefront of our minds and you would help us to live it day by day. For Jesus' sake. Amen.